and welcome to Rippercast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 31, Scene of a Crime, the Duckfield Yard Photograph. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today is Philip Hutchinson from Guilford in Surrey and Robert Clack from Croydon, both in the UK. They are co-authors together of the book The London of Jack the Ripper. John Bennett joins us from London, England, and he is the author of E1, A Journey Through Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Researcher and author Chris Scott joins us from Ramsgate, Kent. He wrote the book Will the Real Mary Kelly. Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He is the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs. Allie Ryder is coming to us from Charlottesville, Virginia in the USA. And Mike Covell is in Hull in the UK. Thank you, everybody, for joining the show today. Uh, Philip um, Hutchison purchased the photograph of Duckfield's yard back in November 2007 and made the photograph public at the U.S. Jack the Ripper conference at Knoxville, Tennessee, just a, a week or so ago in October 2008. In the interim, Philip had numerous individuals whose trusted expertise in the area of East End history, three of them with us today, uh, he had them examine the photograph, and they all came to a consensus that Philip had indeed acquired the first photograph to emerge of the murder site of Elizabeth Stride, who was killed on September 30th, 1888, in the passageway just inside the gates of Dutfield's Yard on Burner Street, Whitechapel. Philip, uh, please take us back to the beginning and describe how you were able to acquire this photograph. <laughs> It was a very simple, straightforward transaction. Uh, I look on eBay every single day for uh, related ephemera to the Ripper case, to uh, the LVP in particular with Whitechapel, Aldgate and Spitalfields area. And there was this one evening where uh, this page came up and it said um, it had a heading of a scene of the famous Whitechapel murders. And uh, the picture beneath it was a photograph of the photograph. It was somewhat uh, blurred and indistinct. And it was impossible to make out from the, the picture that was on the screen what the location was of. It looked like nothing I recognized. But because I had an opening price of uh, $4.95, I put a bid in on it, just in case it was something of interest that even looked good. And uh, the photograph turned up. I, I won it with the opening bid. Nobody else bid on it. And uh, when I opened the envelope, I, I did a double take, and I just thought to myself, surely this isn't what I think it is. And the photograph, uh, you just bought the individual photograph, correct? Was- That's right. The, 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 the seller of it is uh, an old retired gentleman. Uh, his, uh, his income isn't enough to actually even pay his rent as a rule. So uh, he supplements his income by, by selling photographs on eBay. He tends to acquire through auction, through uh, antique shops, junk shops. Uh, various photo albums. He then splits the albums up, takes out the individual shots and sells them individually. The photograph was part of a larger album of photographs that you later acquired. That's, that's correct. Yeah. By the time I acquired the album, some of the images had already been sold. Uh, there's a single page missing and there's three photographs missing. Now, um, describe the photograph for us, please. Um, it's taken... Um, from almost at the street level itself, the photographer is clearly crouching on the ground because the, the cobblestones in the middle of Burner Street are, are fairly evident. The, the image itself is about five by three inches. It's a silver gelatin print. Um, obviously, it's been separated from the album, though the sheet it was attached to, I, I now have in my possession as well. 
Uh, it's a shot looking straight down into the yard from the middle of Berner Street itself. The, uh, the pavement either side of the photographer down to the yard entrance and halfway down the yard is, is lined with local people looking towards the photographer. Uh, primarily children, there's a few women, a couple of men in there as well. To the right hind side standing just above the murder spot is a gentleman wearing a cap and an apron. At the bottom of the yard, there's a couple of gentlemen standing in the doorway of what was by that time a cabinet maker. They're also wearing aprons, so the gentleman himself may have been connected to them. The murder spot itself is uh, completely evident. There's nobody standing on the spot. It's the only place in the photograph where there's no one standing. So it, it's pretty clear to me that uh, the people that were there knew why this woman was taking the photograph, and um, she went there to take a photograph of a Jack the Ripper murder scene, and they stood out of the way of where the murder itself took place so she could actually get it in the image. So the man in the apron that you described who's uh, leaning up against the right gate uh, leading into mm-hmm. Deadfield Yard, we, we know of this murder site just through uh, illustrations uh, made contemporary to the crime. And, and then later yeah. on, uh, the furnace uh, illustration uh, from the early 1900s. Which, uh, yeah, it's three years after this photograph was taken, yet that there is uh, suggestions that possibly Furness himself worked from the 1888 illustrations for this one rather than visiting the location himself because there's errors on his image. Um, but the man uh, uh, standing closest to the spot of the murder, um, mm-hmm. uh, now we don't uh, – there's some discrepancies in the illustration, so I don't want to say how far he's standing from the spot where Liz Stride lay. Um, but but it it does seem like that uh, he is a couple feet at least you know so, some some um, illustrations represent her lying directly in front of the grate on the side of the building if that's a window it's or a, it's, it's a grate which gave ventilation to the basement of Forty Burner Street right um, so um, so you're right in that you know she was lying in this th- that general area and the whole the whole area there uh, is up up to where the man is standing at the gate is exposed. There's people on the left hand side, which would be the south side, of, uh, and it's clear they're standing in Burner Street uh, because we can see shadows on the cobblestones. And I was just wondering what time of day you think the photo was taken. Yeah, uh, Neil Bell's supposition is that the photograph was taken around midday, probably late morning, about uh, after 11 o'clock in the morning. Do we know what time of year she took the photograph as well? Yeah, uh, research has now shown it was taken in the last few days of June or the first few days of July 1900. And what, what do we know about the, the person who took this photograph? We know that clearly she was a very rich woman. The journey at the time uh, cost $970, which equates in today's money to $25,000. She was in Europe for 103 days. It was a massive uh, organized excursion, first-class travel throughout with uh, Thomas Cook. Um, The Thomas Cook archives have, uh, have given me all the details of the trip in question. The woman actually stopped for several days in Ireland. Thomas Cook only had one trip from the States in 1900, which uh, visited Europe, which stopped in Ireland en route. And thankfully, we now know that this is the trip this woman took. And after you acquired the photograph, uh, you you had said earlier that uh, first looking at it, you, you were pretty sure what you were looking at. But um, never, nevertheless, over the last year, you've, like I said in my introduction, contacted many individuals and had uh, their input on this photograph. Describe for us and uh, Rob Clack and John Bennett, 
and Robert McLaughlin pipe in on this topic, but um, describe to us kind of the process you went through in verifying that it was Detfield Yard. When the photograph initially turned up, all I had in front of me was a photograph with no date, nothing at all. On the back, the seller himself has written uh, in modern pencil, uh, scene of the famous Whitechapel murders, London, 1888 to 1891, some connected with Jack the Ripper. He'd clearly just done some Googling himself because underneath the photograph in the album, the original owner in 1900 had written scene of the famous Whitechapel murders. So the guy had done a little research on Google so he could actually find out how we should sell it. Um... And the Jack the Ripper thing, he never put it in the banner heading on eBay. He actually just put it in the description, which obviously made people who look for Ripper ephemera are less likely to have, to have discovered it. But anyway, when it turned up, there was no date at all. My first um, thing that I did was contact a clothing specialist in America, sent him a copy of the image and asked him to give an estimate on the date. He thought it was taken in the 1890s. Um, but but uh, one of those uh, one of his reasons for that is actually it's now found out that he was actually wrong to have thought it. Uh, he claimed that the the boys in the image are all wearing uh, long pants. Um, well, actually, there's only two boys that we can actually see in the image, and they're both actually wearing uh, calf length pants. There's a gentleman who's standing on the right hand side. He's actually he's wearing a cap which looks like a schoolboy cap. Uh, he's actually looks like he's probably under five foot tall. Um, and maybe in a low-res image it looks like a boy, but the photograph in front of me, he has a full beard. So I guess that's why he thought it would be uh, dating from the 1890s. But then it got a little easier. When the album turned up, there was a photograph in the album uh, of Her Majesty's Horse Guards. Her Majesty's Horse Guards clearly dates us before 1901 with the death of Victoria. There's another image in the album of Tower Bridge with traffic on it, so we know then it must date after 1894. So we know it's the last few years of Victoria's reign, 1894 to 1901. Um... And the 1900 thing came later on in the album when it was laying right in front of me. There was a photograph which has been removed. It's one of the ones I don't have of Anton Lang, who was playing Christ in the Oberammergau uh, uh, Passion Play, and she's dated it 1900. How did you go about identifying? Because I know Robert did some of the identifying of the actual yard as far as the buildings. How did that come about? If I, if I could jump in there, I mean, Rob's, Rob's going to say this himself. Rob didn't identify the buildings. What Rob has done is picked out buildings in the background to actually clarify the location. Rob Clack? Well, when Phil showed me the photo, um, at the back of the photo, behind the yard, there were some pointy buildings, and they were very similar to a photo in the 1909 photo of Fairclough Street. And I zoomed in on the... 1909 Fairclough Street photograph, and you could actually see round windows, and these were evident in the photo uh, Phil had. Um, I had problems positioning where the, this actual building was. My first initial thought was it was in Bank Church Lane, but then uh, examining Goad's maps, and that which tells you how tall buildings were, how many floors they had, um, I found it couldn't be on Bank Church Lane. But I had an aerial photograph of Whitechapel area from 1921. And it's plainly on there. It's the Commercial Road Goods Depot. And it ran up Gower's Walk into Gower, um, commercial, commercial Road. So it's no, there's no doubt it's, it's the Commercial Road Goods Depot, which you can see in the back of Phil's photograph. Uh, eliminate any uh, doubt that anyone might have that this is Dutfield's Shard. Can you say with 
a degree of certainty that there is no way that like it could have been one street over, one yard over. I don't know anything about the geographical area of London, which is why I'm posing it for those who would know, just to allay any possible doubt. The only position of the sun, sorry, I was just going to say, if you look at the position of the sun, the sun, the shadows fall in a northward direction. So the position of the yard looking eastward is, sorry, looking from the east is fine. Um, the shadows point in the northerly directions. If it's, well, I think it was, I mean, the shadows are quite short. And so the sun is quite high up in the sky. So it does support midday photograph. And the, the angle of the shadows is fine. The, the only way this image could be erroneous is if the, uh, the 1888 illustrations and every illustration that was done of it since was of a different yard. Uh, it doesn't look like any other yard. At the end of the yard, there is a tall building with tiles and an outside ladder leading to what in the States would be the second floor doorway. Below that, there is a lower building also tiled. It matches completely. There's a grate in the right position. Uh, the gates are the same as in the 1909 photograph. Uh, the uh, International Working Men's Club has a fanlight over the window. It's the right distance down the yard. There's, th there's nothing at all in it to suggest that it's, it's not what it claims it is. Well, it doesn't actually claim it's Duffield Yard. It's just a scene of the Whitechapel murders. I think um, one of the things that got me when I first saw it was uh, I just looked at it and thought, that's Duffield Yard. Because we're so used to seeing the the illustrations and the thing that really sort of made it for me was uh, like Phil and Rob have just been saying is, is the buildings in the background and it's sort of it just suddenly rung rung true and the, and the buildings on the right hand side at the end which I assume is the entrance to the uh, International Working Men's Club and it just looked just like the illustrations it was um, I know instinct is no no substitute for tons of research and things like that. But sometimes someone, someone just hits you and you just think, well, yeah, that's it. And, and that was my first opinion of it. When I saw it, I just thought, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, Philip, when you first saw the photograph, you assumed it was identified correctly. Right? <laughs> or it wasn't identified as Deathfield's Jar, but that's what you, you – you started from a point to where you were pretty convinced – right away or, or and you just wanted to uh, cover all the bases or? i was i was pretty i was pretty sure it was I, I i took one look at it and i thought east end looks a bit ripperish and then i just looked at the end of the yard and saw the configuration of buildings that are at the end of the yard itself which looked completely unlike anything else i've ever seen in the yard photograph of of the east end and i looked at the doorway i looked at the gates i looked at the grate that's evident in the illustrations and i suddenly realized what it was everything from there on in was um i mean i, I knew what i had but i ha i had to get uh, you know absolute confirmation before i decided to actually you know go go forward with it because I didn't want to look like an idiot, that, that I, you know, that maybe I, I could be uh, mistaken in, in what I'd thought. So I had to get the through to some I other think, people. Can I just say, hi, Philip, by the way, it's Chris Scott. Um, Hello, Chris. Hi. Um, I think I'm also arguing it from the other angle as well. You come to the same conclusion, because I don't think there's any reasonable uh, reason to doubt that locals would have been able to accurately identify where the sites were only 12 years after the event. And there's, I don't think there's any reason to assume that the woman would have labelled it wrongly and thought it was a ripper site when it wasn't. And then if you run through even, even the uh, non-canonical sites, I mean, when you look at the conformation of the picture, 
there's no other site it could be. It's not remotely like it. I mean, there's no way it could be Miller's Court or Buckstrow or Castle Alley. So, I mean, even even by a process of elimination, I think you'd come to Duckfield's Yard anyway. But uh, as, as Rob said, I mean, that building on the right-hand side, the one just beyond where, where the crossbeam went across, mm-hmm. the, the confirmation of the doors and windows is absolutely identical to at least two illustrations. Yes. It's, it's not identical to the furnace, though. Furnace made errors in his. He's, uh, there's a line of four windows past the doorway in, and Furnace has yeah. marked all of those windows as actually being doorways, which, of course, would be one ridiculous. I'm thinking of, the one I'm thinking of is the pictorial news one, the finding of the body, because that's from yeah. virtually, the, virtually the same angle as your photograph. Indeed, yes. And it, as well, I said, it, sh- yeah, it shows the, you know, on, on the ground floor, there's the one opening lower than the other three. I mean, it's absolutely identical. Yes. I don't think we should go by the pictorial news. I mean, if you look at the illustration before, uh, below that, it's the one of the Manchester Square, and they put a door in for some reason into the side of, into the back of Mr. Taylor's shop. So, um, and that later appears in the furnace drawings as well. So, it's, I think, I think furnace might have got his ideas or drawings based on the pictorial news. Yeah. But actually, actually the, the, the pictorial news one of the finding of the body, the confirmation of that building, is, is pretty much identical within the photo. Oh, yeah. Actually, if you look at the um, goad maps, I've got one in front yeah. of me here, and you put Duckfield's Yard at the bottom and go up. Um, if you look at the left-hand side of the photograph, you'll, you'll notice that the, um, the building's just past... As a gentleman standing there, what looks, looks like a lady behind him, the buildings go in a little bit and then carry on. And then at the far left corner, you've on the gold map, you've got a little set of stairs, which you can see on the photograph. And then it's obvious that the the building, the the yard goes round a, a little bend like it does. And then you've got the the back of the working men's club leading out. So even even the shape, um, I suppose, the profile of the buildings match the gold map and the gold map i'm talking about here is, uh, is 1899 so it's sort mm. of current with it but yeah even down to that you can see where the, the buildings move and bend round and all that so just like the just like the map which uh, we all yeah. assume is incredibly accurate which helps as well do, do we have, do we know do we have any indication as to when the gates were changed from being the the solid slatted wooden ones that they were in the 1880s to the the barred uh, metal ones. Well, there is this talk, isn't there, of work being done on the club in about 1892. So whether it's possible that it would have been done then, um, it's theorising, I suppose, isn't it? I don't know if anyone else has got any thoughts on this, but it may have yeah. come I mean, at the same there's, sort of time. There's, there's clearly, we have the issue with the cobbles as well, that, that a lot of the reports say that uh, it was only partially cobbled, and this is clearly cobbled for its entire length. It, it has to be suppositious that, uh, that, that the gates and the cobbles were done at the time of the renovation work in 1892, but we can't be sure on this. Comes to that, you look at the, I know we was talking about the illustrations and in some ways that they're not very accurate, but the, I've got a couple in front of me here, including the furnace one, and two that were from 1888, and they both look like they've got cobbles. So, I mean, how, yeah. how accurate that is. But, um, but you can only see part of the yard with those, so... Yeah. Now, the, uh, the stairs that lead up to the building at the back of the yard, in your photograph, it uh, differs from what we are used to seeing in illustrations. Could you uh, describe a little bit of that for us? 
Yeah, it's actually very simple. A lot of the illustrations put the stairs uh, in what we would see as being the centre of the yard, i.e. looking at the building, the right-hand side of the taller building. Uh, most of the illustrations have them on that side, if you can see the stairs at all. And this was a, a bit of an issue for me, because I thought, well, you know, the stairs are in the wrong place, do I have the wrong location? So I contacted <coughs> Jake Lukanen, who provided me with a draft plan of the GOATS map from 1880, uh, 1889, 10 years before the, the familiar one was published. And sure enough, the stairs on the 1889 GOATS map, which obviously we, could, we can class as being absolutely accurate without any deviation, are in the correct place for the photograph. They're on the left-hand side, not the right-hand side as it's shown in the illustrations. Okay. Because I, I was wondering if maybe the, the uh, in your photograph the building at the back uh, st- stretched further off out of picture and could be uh, towards the right-hand side of that of that structure as opposed to on the left. Uh, but you're able to... See what you're saying. Yeah, they're, they're, they're joined on. They're joined on to the row of old cottages at the back of 42 Burner Street. Right. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, the location always looked right to me as well. You know, when Philip first sent me the photograph as well. You know, I, I don't know anyone who, who Philip sent it to that, that saw any, any problems with it, actually. Uh, there is one question I wanted to ask. Uh, one of you probably know this: is that do we know uh, the dimensions of the yard? Well, we, we know we know the width of the yard at where the gates are was nine feet, so each gate was four foot six. Um, I could discover that, but I, I don't have the details to hand personally about, about the yard itself. I'm sure Rob will just about hundred feet deep. That I've got some info here uh, for a distance of eighteen to twenty feet. From the street, there is a dead wall on either side of the court. It says that the basically the court is 20 feet uh, deep from the street. Um, it mentions on one side um, you've got the the cottages. Um, on the opposite side, you've got the uh, club. Uh, it says uh, there's a small wicket on the gates, which are large, large wooden gates. Um, obviously, the small wicket is used when the gates are closed. What source is this, Mike? This is from the Hull News on Saturday, October the 6th, 1888. Um, and this was from one of their correspondents that was based in London at the time. It was there to cover the panel um, commission um, and ended up covering all the, the Whitechapel stuff. Um, there's some light thrown into the court from the windows of the Working Men's Club, which uh, occupies the whole length of the court on the right. And a number of cottages occupied mainly by sailors <coughs> and cigarette makers on the left. Um, however, during the time the murders were committed, these were all in darkness. Um, it just gives a few basics of the court. Um, but other than that, that that's the, the, the only time I've heard the actual depth of the court being mentioned. And Robert Clack, you were about to make a comment on this as well? Yeah, using the scale in the GOAT map, it's, the Duffield Yard looks about 100 feet from the gate to the back of the stairs. And then it widens at the end to about... Well, about 30 feet, which will be behind the Workers' Men's Club. And yeah, because that's the, part, that's the part we can't see in the photograph. Yeah, uh, Robin, Phil, yeah. like there's this part behind that like that we can't see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it curves to the right at the end. And uh, not only is that offshot because the, uh, the, the Workers' Men's Club is blocking the view, but there's also a very small little girl is actually standing blocking where the two join as well. You can just see the roof of the tall of the small building at the back of the yard above her head 
And the uh, what a lot of people had commented on when they first saw this photo was that the the entrance way into the yard looked narrower than what they thought it would be. I think that, that uh, there had been estimates of it being nine feet across. Is that right? That's yeah. I think that's what the records record it as being. And certainly, uh, it, it is nine feet across. It's just that. People think nine feet sounds wider than it actually is. If they measured out nine feet, they'd see it's not that big at all. It's only, you know, it's only three foot longer than, than a, 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 a guy of just above average height today just laying on the ground. Right. And also the, the way that the people in the photograph are positioned kind of create, I think, uh, the illusion of it being a tighter space. Uh, would, wouldn't you agree? That's true. Because they're not none of them, yeah. except for the ones uh, uh, standing against the gates, are actually standing against the wall. But because of the photograph, um, the resolution of the photograph, you know, it kind of makes an illusion of a tunnel looking down when when actually these people are standing outside of the yard. Um, yeah, so perspectives focus- are also changed. Uh, sorry, perspectives are also changed with, uh, with, with early cameras. Uh, when Eugenia Parry gave her, her talk on this uh, French crime scene album that she acquired, when she gave the talk at the same Knoxville conference, uh, some of the photos look weird. Uh, people's uh, limbs and things look out of proportion to the rest of their body. And she said it was, it was to do with the lenses that were in use at that time, which is it's, it's from the same period. So you, you get foreshortening, you, you get uh, things looking longer than they are, and it's all to do with the lenses. But one thing I found interesting by looking at it is that, uh, you know, when you read about uh, Diemschatz uh, pulling his pony and cart into, you know, the yard and the pony shied, you can understand why, looking at, you know, how narrow the space is. And, and Liz Stride taking up, uh, of course, some of the space in the gutter. Uh, you, you can understand, you know, just how it happened, according to Diemschatz. Yeah. Well, also, one of the things that I had thought when I saw it, obviously, and I did post it on the board, but I did, was the fact that I don't believe that Dean Schutz uh, interrupted the killing anymore after viewing this photo. But I did have a question, because I am geographically inept, and I don't visualize things well. So I would like to ask those who have studied this uh, yard in a lot more detail, is there any way out of the yard other than through the gates? Uh, not in 1888, right? Because my thought upon viewing this was that there's no, I mean, it, it's a nine foot wide space. And unless, you know, uh, Diemschitz was completely one of those people who's just completely unaware of his surroundings, no matter how dark it is in such a narrow space, you would you would sort of get the feel of the slightest sound of movement or whatever in there. And I know there was a, a club and everything, but I just can't imagine somebody standing in this alley and not being aware that there's somebody else standing there also. So my only question of this before I, you know, blow my whole new theory out of the water would be, was there another way out that Jack could have gone if he had been interrupted? Would he have been able to go to the back of the yard and get out? Well, I think when you, when you look at the, the width of, from the photograph, it does sort of make you question um, this idea of whether Stride's killer could have actually have still been in there hiding in the shadows because I think once you've got a, a pony and trap in there or whatever it was, pony and cart, there's probably not going to be that much room for manoeuvre, uh, especially if you've got Dean Schutz bending over the body as well. It, chances are that pony and cart probably filled up most of that space unless, of course, he sort of hot-footed it to the end, hid round the corner and waited until some, you know, until Dean Schutz went in the club. Was, was, am I right in assuming there was a little point when there would have been no one 
in the yard whilst he went to get help. Yeah, yeah certainly when he, when he, he struck a match. Into the club, yeah. yeah. He, he struck a match and oh, cause he, if, I rem- if I remember initially he thought it might be his wife and then he struck a match <laughs> and saw what it was and then ran into the club. Can I, can I, can I chip in with two pennies here because I've, I've posted a, a long article to the threads today which um, was an account written in 1890 by... Um, an unnamed writer who visited all the murder sites, including Burner Street, um, and he specifically says that it, w- it would be possible to escape from the back. So there right. was an opening out the back? Um, well, I won't go on at length, but the bit about Burner Street, which is quite, which is quite interesting, he says, um, and even should, by the remote possibility, the murderer be disturbed by anybody opening the gate from the street entrance, he is by no means caught in a trap for there are plenty of backyards that can be scaled and a great many courts and passages leading to Burner and other streets to be easily reached. Um, on the whole, then, that gateway in Burner Street would form a very safe place for any operations of the Ripper. And, and he, he was writing, having just been round, in fact, he went to seven sites because he went to the, the Canonical Five and George Yard and Castle Alley because this was written in 1890. He went there and visited it and had a look around. He looked around all the sites because he's got some quite interesting things to say about Bucks Row. I've, I've posted it on the threads. It's called Murderland Revisited. I don't think he's talking about Duffield's Yard in specific because there is no way you can get out of Duffield's Yard. Not according to any no, of the goes I've seen. I think, I think he was talking he's got, about Whitechapel uh, in general. No, no, he's got, he's got a section on each site that he visits. He does a bit on George Yard, then there's a paragraph on Bucks Row, and this is... This is in the section about um, about Duffield's Yard, about Burner Street. Yeah, I know the article. It's from the but Gazette, isn't it? But I don't know how can there be several small yards? He said there's several small walls that people can scale. How can there be several small walls in Duffield's Yard? See what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like this is... It might be talking about the entire street, but I don't see how he could be talking about Duffield's Yard specifically if he's saying there's several small walls. Looking at the goes... Um... The only way out of the yard at the back is be climbing over. A, there's a forge and there's a stable yard which is in to the right as you turn around the International Working Men's Club. That was a stable from the goes map, and even that you're, you're still going on the back of someone's garden. So I can't see how you could climb over that. Um, there's a forge, and where what you could, the stairs you can see in Philip's photograph. The top of that was a workshop or factory on a second, and there's a stairway yards underneath. So there's no way you can climb over the walls there. So there is no way out, not that I can see. Looking at this map again, at uh, the rear of 42, um, which is marked as a D for dwelling, just before the, the alleyway sort of opens up a teeny bit, um, there is what looks like a sort of a blank space, which I'm assuming may be a very small backyard of... Uh, the back of 42, but if there was like something which you can't probably see on on the photograph because there's people in the way, um, if he got over that, if there was a little fence there, whatever it was, or a wall and he got over that, you'd it'd still be stuck into an entire row of the backyards of the houses on uh, Fairclough Street. So it it does look that there wasn't really any way out, really, apart from the main gate. Anything else, it's just going into people's yards or something like that by the looks of it. 
if he if he was pretty good at scaling walls, I mean, there, there is a sing, there's a single story building at the back. There's also the stables, which I presume themselves would have only been single story, or am I wrong in that? But there's certainly at least one single story building at the back. I mean, that's the only way he, he could get out from the yard by 1888, apart from going the obvious way through the street. And at the rear of 42, there did look like a um, what could possibly be a back small, very small backyard at the rear of 42. But if there was any way of getting over a wall or a fence that we can't see on the photograph, um, that would go into 42. If he had to scale another fence to get into 44, that's it. You're, you're, he's stuck in all the backyards of the houses on Fairclough Street. And so, but according to the Goad map, there's, like Phil says, unless he can sort of get over the one-storey forge, um, anyway, even if he did get over any buildings, he could end up going over loads of other buildings or into other people's backyards. Uh, which are then hemmed in by other buildings. So from from what I see on the trusty goad, it looks like the only way out. It looks like the um the front you know, the main gate. I wanted to ask you, Philip, about uh the uh photographer or about the albums. Um I assume you're looking into trying to identify the photographer. Uh do you know where the seller of this album acquired the album from? And um and are you uh, thinking that there's a possibility that there may be other photo albums belonging to this individual that could have more pictures? Or I mean, how much are, how how much are you in the hunt um, to find this this woman and, and uh, possibly other photographs by her? Finding the identity of the woman is now all-consuming. I'm afraid there's no chance of any other photos turning up. Uh, the guy I bought it from, I sent him inquiries immediately. He lives in Houston. He bought the album. All he remembers is from a seller on eBay two years ago. This guy deals in hundreds of photos every day. I'm amazed he even remembered that. He had the album sitting around for two years, not sure what to do with it, decided in the end to split the whole album up and sell the images individually. There wouldn't be other photographs in the album anyway because um, the... the the trip is chronicled. We know where she went and when she went there from the Thomas Cook uh, excursions list. And the trip is fully chronicled in the album with photographs following afterwards. So there wouldn't be anything else you would have taken. And over the past uh, several years, uh, there has been um, other photographs about the case uh, discovered. We had the Annie Chapman marriage photo, <clears throat> the uh, photo that Tim Reardon recently discovered of Tumble Tea. And now your photo of Dutfield Jard. It does give hope to ripperologists who are still researching this case that there are, in fact, more materials out there to be found. And, of course, that's what, what uh, I mean, you hunt on eBay for some of these materials. Um, so you seem confident that, that um, this isn't the end of, of the line as far as material, uh, especially photographic material. I, I don't doubt it. There's, there's things can turn up all the time. The issue we are going to have, and I, I think everybody else would probably agree with this, is that to try to find photographs of individuals connected with the case, unless they're officials that are kept in archives with a provenance, or if they're from family members of the victims, anything that turns up is going to be, uh, it's, it's certainly going to be debated, but will certainly not be provable, because we've only got generally for the victims' photographs in death, and... Uh, anybody who collects carte de visite's Victorian photography will know that almost always when an image turns up of an individual, they virtually never have uh, the individual's name written on the back. And if it does have the name written on the back, people are still going to argue about its authenticity. 
So locations, sure, more will turn up. There's no doubt about that. To try to find individuals, I think, if people are looking to get a live photograph of Mary Kelly, they're going to have a very long wait. There's one thing that's always puzzled me. It's about. It's not. It's not specifically about the um, the photo. It's about Duffield Yard in particular. Um, did, did the did the buildings there have basements? Forty certainly did, because the grate that's in the wall that you see in some of the illustrations was the ventilation shaft for its basement. Right. That's what I was wondering about, because I, I wonder what on earth that grating was. Because it's set, it's set into the wall, not the ground, doesn't it? That's right. Yes. So that was. That was a ventilation, what, for the basement? That's correct. Ah, right. Now, my source for that, I have to say, is actually uh, from an article that Tom Westcott wrote in Ripper Notes. Um, so, so my information for that is a secondary source. Um, so it, it, would be, it would be down to Tom to establish uh, what his source was to be able to put that in his article. Well, it makes sense because the grating is right down at ground level, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the other thing is again, it's only it's not specifically about the. Um, uh, I know I know when the when Hanbury Street was when were those buildings in Burner Street actually finally demolished? At nineteen oh nine. Oh, as early as that. Yeah, there was a set of photographs of the sort of the southern block of Burner Street, starting from Backchurch Lane, Fairclough Street, and then Burner Street. They're all taken on the same day, and I presume they were taken just to record. Record the buildings before they were demolished. Um, the school that's on the site now, I believe, was opened in 1910, so it'd be about that time. All ah, right, because if 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 I've saw, um, I think it was in the East End then and now, because the actual murder site now is actually isn't it in like one corner of the playground? Yeah, and even that's changed slightly now because they've demolished, well, not down a slight portion of the wall and put a new gateway. Put a new gateway in, which I think is now a part of a park up, uh, car park. Sorry. All oh, right. Uh, yeah, there's a new gateway there, which is on the position of number forty. Would have been. Right. Uh, I, mean, I haven't checked for a while, but there is a new gateway there. And the cobblestones, we you had said that that you believe there's a possibility that those were replaced in the late 1890s. Um, in reading accounts of Stride's death, they refer to a gutter going from where her body was found out onto the street. And, and I was wondering if, if you believe that that's evident in your photograph. There is a slight recession in, from what I can tell, in the cobblestones. Do you believe that that's what they were referring to as, as the gutter or... I'm I'm fairly certain it is. Um, when most of the yard, the stones are displayed in a higgledy-piggledy fashion, down on that side, uh, there is something. It looks like it almost looks like a line of stones have been like concreted or cemented up to the wall to a height and a length of about six inches. But then just beyond that, there is a straight line of cobbles going down, and next to that, another straight line of cobbles going down, which stop at the steps leading into the educational club, which is how the record's actually recorded. I have a feeling the gutter is actually two sets of cobbles which have been slightly angled into each other to form a conduit for water, and nothing more than that. It's not actually a gully. It's, been for- it's, a, it's, a, it's a conduit that's been formed from the cobbles themselves. And um, what led you to decide to release this picture uh, a year after you had discovered it um, at the uh, Ripper conference that took place in Knoxville, Tennessee? 
I'd already been invited to speak at the conference. Uh, Judy, who you know is one of the conference organisers, had actually asked me to speak before I actually got the photograph. But then when uh, Kelly and, and Dan took the conference over and asked me to speak, uh, this was about the time that I came into ownership of the image, and I thought it would be it would be great to actually unveil it then. Uh, it was it was it was it was a choice to, a choice to do it then as, as uh, to make it uh, you know. You know a, a, a bigger announcement when it, when it came, you could actually do this at the conference and unveil it for the first time. And at the conference, you had done a PowerPoint presentation on this photograph. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And I've seen, I believe, only one picture from the PowerPoint, uh, which was of the goods building, the detail of the rooftop that Rob Clack was referring to earlier. Uh, could you uh, tell us, uh, those of us who weren't able to go to the conference, uh, what uh, else your PowerPoint presentation entailed? Well, the first half of the presentation was actually about the Whitby Collection, the series of uh, images taken by John Gordon Whitby in 1961, which I acquired in uh, the spring of 2007. Um, and that is really how the talk itself was built, so that when the Duckfields image came up about half an hour into the presentation, um, then people would have no idea what was actually coming up. So in, in that sense, it, w it was all meant to be a surprise. Uh, the images were largely connected with... Um, with the album, with uh, references made uh, from the woman's notes in the album, which which are extensive, um, pictures of places that she she mentions. Um, then obviously there's a lot of comparison shots. There, there's uh, close-up details of certain places in the yard, things that we found from the photograph that we probably wouldn't have seen beforehand, and uh, the images that we do have of it, and uh, comparison shots as well. It was about about 120 images in all, I think it was. Is the photo itself in reasonably good condition? A uh, good question. Um, it is kept in an archival plastic casing at the moment. Um, it's been suggested I should actually stick it back in the album. Well, no, it, it's, it's staying out of the album now. Um, the photograph itself has sustained a small amount of damage, nothing like the damage that we'd see on other images, and these dam this damage was done in antiquity. The removal from the album has not actually harmed the image itself in any way. Uh, there's paper adhering to the back of it from where it was originally glued in, but the photograph has not been creased, has not been torn in any way. The damage that is evident on there, not only is the slight fading of age, obviously, like a lot of these uh, silver gelatin prints, it's gone sepia. It's almost a kind of purple sepia. The, the actual image is gone. The problem that we do have with it is that there is up the left-hand side and all along the top there are flakes missing from it. And I had previously thought this had been where maybe at some point in the past the image had been contained within a photograph album where you view it from within a mount. So the photograph mm -hmm. is actually undercard on both sides because that's what it looks like. But it actually mm -hmm. turns up that what we've got there is it's where the image was in the album all that time and the image on the facing page was at a slightly smaller size. And when mm -hmm. it was glued into the album, the image on the facing page, it's actually pulled off uh, parts, of the, uh, parts of this photograph from where it was attached where it was actually facing down on top of it. Because that's happened in quite a few of the photos in the album. You did say initially what kind of photograph it was, the technical, what was that, something gelatin? S silver gelatin print, yeah. It's how, how, uh, I mean, it's how stable are they? I mean, what I'm, what I'm thinking more, you know, about how, how you go about the conservation of the photograph. Sure. Um, it's more stable than an albumin one. Uh, albumin images, which are the ones that often look like they're on paper, they, they will fade over time because of the stability of, of the materials. These aren't stable. Eventually, this will fade and will go, like uh, the original victim photograph still surviving. For instance, the one of Annie Chapman is now almost completely faded. 
Um, yeah. it, it is it is going. It, it will perish. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. Everything turns to dust again in the end, and it's going to happen yeah. with this one. But I think we've still got a good few years yet. The image itself, in spite of the small amount of damage and the fact that the cut, the colour has changed, the image is still very sharp and clear. Have you have you used? I mean. Going back, obviously it's a 1900 photo, and I mean, obviously you were preparing it for PowerPoint and the the, the one that was put up on Thomas's site. Have you um, sort of used modern technology to enhance the photo to see if there's anything? I mean, some some of the ones I've seen and some family photos I've got have almost completely gone. But when you put them through Photoshop or something, it's amazing what you can see in them. That's that's exactly right, Chris. That's, that's exactly uh, what was done with it. The image that has been seen that was put up on Thomas's site short term was about the same size as the actual image, but it was scanned at 72 DPI. It's it's very yeah. blurred, um, so you are not you, you don't see much of the detail on it. Those who have seen the image can attest that it's actually a very sharp photograph. Uh, Photoshop, I uh, replaced all the uh, the missing sections from it, which was fairly easy to do. There was only when it went over uh, people's faces that it was more difficult, but over brickwork, over sky and stuff, to fill in the bits that were, had been removed was, was very easy. Um, yeah. But yeah, there was, there was brightness and contrast and uh, desaturation to remove the, uh, the colour in there that shouldn't be there. Um, yeah. It didn't pick out anything that you couldn't see anyway, but it made it a lot clearer. Yeah, good. Yeah, just what Phil was saying about um, the difference in, you know, when you've actually got the real photograph there and the difference between the, the low-resolution scan. What we were talking about right at the beginning, um, Phil, I've got an image of it in front of me um, that isn't from the little scan. But it's just amazing what you can suddenly sort of notice when I think Phil mentioned the little circular windows in the buildings at the back. Mm. And I'm looking closely and I can actually see them, which I didn't notice before, and the guy's beard as well. I'm looking at him and I said, oh, yes, he has got a beard. So it's, you know, it's the fact that, you know, access to the actual real or, or a good image shows up a lot more than than what was coming across on the on the little scan um, is quite important. Another another thing that was uh, evident on on Rob's discovery of the, uh, the the building in the background, this this goods depot, is that between the two gable ends, there is actually something very small, is uh, a narrow sticking up. It's like a line of bricks between the two gables, and sure enough, on the 1909 image, uh, it's there just between those two very same gables as well. Oh, I'm not right. sure what it, what purpose it served, but it's there. Yeah. I can see that actually as well. Yeah, on on here. And can can I can I just one more? I won't because uh, I, I natter on too much. But on the threads, which I've sort of observed but not got involved in, um, <laughs> about the photo, you've you've um, you said that um, that this when you said that this is going to be featured in a sort of forthcoming book. Yeah. And obviously, obviously, I respect it if you don't want to say too much, but. Um, is the book going to be purely about the photograph and its discovery and verification, or is it going to be part of sort of a larger? No, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid question, Chris. Um, it, the, the whole intention of it, um, my worry was, and, and this is purely for my ego, this, this is where I'll, I'll hold my hands up and say, yeah, I'm doing this for me. Um, when Neil Sheldon obtained the wedding photograph of Annie Chapman, uh, it was a lot of work on his part, and very quickly, uh, his entire connection with it, for the majority of people, apart from those within the Ripper community, was completely lost. It was being lifted and being used on websites and books without his permission, without the family's permission. And uh, I spoke to Neil about this issue, and he told me the best way to try to, 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 to keep some kind of control over the image is to be the first one to publish it. And I thought, well, you know, a bit, little bit late for Rob's and mine's book now seeing spin out for over a year. 
But um, the amount of research and uh, into the album now and the woman and the photograph and the verification it is now large enough to make uh, a book of about the same size as the one that Neil did on, uh, on, on the Jet the Ripper victims that, again, was, was also published last year. Uh, Dan Norder has actually agreed in principle to, to publish this through, through Inklings Press. Um, so it is going to be about, obviously, about the photograph, about what, if anything, the photo teaches us about the research into the album, the album itself, and trying to identify the photographer. Because the, what we actually have here is the earliest known tourist photograph of a Ripper site. Have you got, um, and again, I, I don't expect a name, obviously, have you got an inkling as to who the woman was, or is it just a, a blank canvas at the moment? I did have an inkling, and then the inkling turned out to be uh, to be wrong. Uh, everything fitted, and then something came forward, and it it no longer fitted. Some people said, yeah. still said to me, "Well, it doesn't matter; that can still work." But no, nah, for me, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. One great thing that we do have is that because this one was clearly rich, and we know she was travelling uh, first class on the Lucania uh, ship, travelling from New York on the second of June, nineteen hundred. Uh, Tim Rawdon has, has actually uh, sent me something he found in the New York Times. Uh, every day in the New York Times, there was a list of certain first-class passengers leaving yes. New York on voyages. And he yeah. sent me a list of those first-class passengers. And there's a load of names on there I've not seen before. So that's the next step for me to go through that list and start trying to find people. Now, at the conference, uh, you had um, spoken about uh, the, the poet Reese as someone who you uh, at first thought might have uh, taken this photograph, but now uh, you discount her. Can you uh, describe a little bit about that for us? Yeah. Um, there was um, When leads started running out, I started looking more in depth into the, uh, the notations the woman had put in the album. This is how we got the, to the Thomas Cook reference at all for me to actually find out that, that, uh, you know, that the trip she made because she mentioned a, co a Cook's jaunting car in one, just in one of the passages. Um, but again, looking through it, there, there's, she had a long entry underneath a photograph of Mount Vesuvius. She said it was taken from a passing train. And she says, during this journey, I was writing some manuscripts. Um, and then she goes on about a, a man in the carriage picked them up and, and read that he was an Italian didn't read English and he started reading them to the carriage to everyone's amusement but it, it suddenly hit me this, this is a, uh, almost certainly a single woman because there's no mentions of a man in there no, mention, no photographs of a husband or a family that all the photographs in there are just of her and other single women um, so I assume this is, a, this is a single woman she's obviously a woman of means this woman had the equivalent of $25,000 to take a three and a half month vacation in Europe she had a good camera for the time it was almost certainly a Kodak box brownie uh, but nevertheless and to that amount of photographs there's, there's 59 photographs in this trip alone this is, this is a woman of means she's talking about writing manuscripts it then led me to believe how is she a woman of means? If she's writing manuscripts, what does manuscripts mean to you? If she's writing a diary, then she'd say, writing in my journal. Manuscripts, to me, mean some degree of professional work. And, and that's all it can mean. So then I thought, maybe she's a writer. I then started looking through the internet. I came up with a list of about 100 female uh, U.S. writers from the late 1800s. Started going through all that entire list. Um, discounted nearly all of them because they were dead by 1900. They were too old. They were too young. Uh, they, they, they were Afro-American, so you know, they, they didn't fit. They were married, whatever. Um, and there was only about a dozen names of, of writers that still turned up. I started then 
going through Google Image and trying to find photographs of them. And none of them really matched. But one photograph of a woman in old age looked exactly like the clear photograph we have in the album of the woman who took the vacation. Everything matched. And then by the time the presentation was put together and I was actually already in the States, I accessed uh, the, the net from the hotel and I got set an image of the same woman in old age when she was younger, this poet, Lizette Woodworth-Reese. And it turns out when she was younger, she then looked pretty much nothing like the woman who is the, uh, the Duckfield Yard photographer. So I had to discount it. But everything mm. else fitted. She was from the right location. She was missing uh, from most of the 1900 records. She's traveled extensively in Europe. Um, she never married. Uh, she was rich. So every, everything seemed to fit. But then younger photos ever turned up, and suddenly it didn't work anymore. Um, and and she uh, founded the Women's Literary Club of Baltimore. Was that your um, idea of maybe the the group that that she had taken this trip with, or? Possibly. The, the things that actually helped with the Baltimore reference was the, the fact that Baltimore is not a million miles from New York where she took the trip. If she lived over in California, I would think the idea of her taking a Europe trip, traveling all those thousands of miles across the states would have been less likely. That's suppositious, but it's a, you know, it's a, a fairly safe assumption. But the thing that really hints at Baltimore is that there is a photograph, two photographs, in fact, in the album of a Miss Van Newkirk. It's spelled in the original Dutch way. Um, now, through the Wisconsin Historical Society, all sorts of archives, loads of places throughout the states over the last year, uh, we found out that there is no Van Newkirk listed in the census return uh, with that spelling. Um, in fact, it seems that spelling of it died out in, uh, in the Netherlands in the late 1700s. There are several Van Newkirks spelled the way you'd expect, N-E-W-K-I-R-K, in the U.S. in 1900. There's two or three in New York and New Jersey, and there's a massive amount of them. When I say massive, I'm talking about ten or so uh, in Baltimore. It's a Miss Van Newkirk. There was several unmarried uh, Van Newkirk women in Baltimore at that time, which again made me think Baltimore, there's Ed Woodworth Reese, and other thing links. This Miss Van Newkirk is still proving a bit of a conundrum. She may not have even been on the trip. She may have just been someone that uh, our photographer met while she was taking the trip, and she just traveled around the area with her for a couple of days. That one we're not going to know. Mm-hmm. But so you're a discounting Reese uh, based entirely on that she, from what photograph you've seen of her at a younger age, she does not resemble the photograph in the in the album, right? Exactly. Everything fits except the photograph of her in younger years does not look anything like the photograph of a photographer in the album, and mm-hmm. for that reason alone, I have to discount her. Huh. From- from the itinerary um, details, have, have you got any indication as – because you said this was taken, I think you said either late June or early July. Um, have you got any indication of how long she spent in the UK and, you know, when she would have arrived? Certainly. She spent eight days in the UK. Um, I could possibly make out within a couple of days when, when it was she arrived in England. Um, but actually, no, she spent eight days in London. Now, she went to other places. I mean, I mean she's, she's got shots in there of, of Stratford-on-Avon. You know, she, she visited Shakespeare's birthplace as well. Um, so it wasn't just London she stayed in. But, but the, the, the stay in London was eight days, and those eight days cover the end of June and the start of July. Right. Back to the Reese uh, f- uh, photograph that's in the album. Is it labeled as, as – um, I mean, how, how are you certain that the photograph in the album is, is, is of the person who took the picture? 
underneath the photographs in the album, she's talking about when she took the photograph, I did this, I did that. And then there's several photographs of the woman, and she's written myself. Oh, so, okay. You know, it, it has, it's, it, 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 they have to link. Right, okay. Do you know, um, I, I, don't, I can't remember that you mentioned it in the itinerary, um, was there any indication as to um, what, uh, what ship she travelled on? Yeah, she travelled on the Lucania. It was the SS oh. Cunard Lucania. Um, uh, it was. It caught fire in uh, Liverpool, I think it was, in 1908. It was scrapped in 1909. <laughs> I've got all the details on, on the ship. Uh, how many? I think it uh, it could hold 2,000 passengers. It was. It was a oh, big right. ship. Yeah. From Howard Brown, he asks, "What do you believe the people in the photo shoot were doing?" Uh, they, they they were locals. Um, they they as far as I know, they were people. This 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 is guesswork on my part because we we're never going to know the answer. To. Right. As far as I'm concerned, they were locals milling about the street. They had a rich American woman turn up in a handsome cab, who they'd never seen before, who's well dressed, holding a camera. Uh, a cabbie is directing her to some guy down that yard who'll be able to tell her about the murder. She's lining up with the camera. The pe- the locals are looking around to uh, to get a good look at this strange woman. Right. That's what I assume is it was kind of a novelty. Um, yeah. I have a, a, a woman with a, a an American woman with a camera taking pictures of that location. Yeah. Um, what what tips are you willing to offer for inspired collectors after your find? <laughs> um, hmm. that's uh, that's that's a difficult one. I mean, um, keep I, looking I, on eBay. Yeah, that's one. I, I think that the, the moral to this is, is just because something's being sold cheap, don't think that it has to be uh, something that's not important. Because the guy that's selling it might have no idea what it is he really has. What was the reaction to the seller? Um, I mean, what what was his reaction to your excitement about this photograph? He's delighted, um, you know, because I, I felt sorry for the guy in, in some ways, you know, because, because he, he's not a man of, of a particular financial means. I've stayed in touch with him. I sent him a, a free copy of the book. I've sent him lots of information. I've kept him updated. Uh, he's been sending me information. I bought the album from him for the price he asked me. So, uh, so he's actually said he was very pleased with the, the amount of money I paid for it. Uh, I sent him a gift at Christmas, that kind of thing. So, you know, he's... he's He's perfectly delighted with it. He has no problem with the fact that he sold it to me for five dollars at all. And Howard also asks uh, if, um, in your view, if you believe that the prices, I mean, like you said, you 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 bought this photograph for five dollars. Howard wonders if you tend to see that the prices will escalate for other photos of the period in relation to the case, as a result of all the interest that this one has been responsible for. I, I guess that would just kind of depend depend on the seller. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people sell things for huge prices on eBay that, that are far more than they're worth. Uh, if someone knows what they've got, then, then sure enough, you can go ahead and do it. But I wouldn't put it on eBay. I'd actually put it up to uh, up for sale, you know, for, for ripper historians rather than just for the general public. Because I don't think eBay is the right place to sell sell things of, of this historical merit. Um, I don't think it's going to make any difference at all. I mean, the, the world at general doesn't know about it yet. And it's not going to make any difference to the ripper case when, when it's out there apart from the fact that there's something quite important that was, that was found cheaply on eBay. I don't think it's going to make any odds whatsoever. I think it just shows that someone, um, someone mentioned earlier on that, I mean, I think just this year alone we've had this photograph. We've had the photograph of uh, Tumble T, um, Joseph Loenda. You know, it, it just goes to show, and I think well, Rob, Rob recently found some new 
or photos we've never seen before from the 1960s, isn't it, Rob, of uh, some of the murder sites? Yeah, I, I came across some photos of um, Derwood Street, Hanbury Street, and Mitre Square from the 1960s, which have never been seen before. Um, they're on a website if people want to look for them. I'm not telling anyone what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and they're amazing. They're, go- they're, be- they're actually better than the Whitby collection, to be honest. They're very nice photographs. Yeah, some yeah. Of it just shows you what's, what's still out there, you know. Right. Now, uh, Philip, uh, this is my final question. Is um, Due to the fact that you chose to put the photograph up on uh, the German website for 24 hours and it was a smaller copy of the photo, watermarked, um, and a lot of people miss seeing it all together, how quickly are you wanting to get this book out? Well, the the, uh, the intention is to actually have the book out uh, hopefully b- before the end of next year. I would sooner not have actually announced this photograph to the world in general at all. But uh, by virtue of the fact I've just given a lecture on it in America, if I hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it straight after the lecture. It would have been spoken about and people would be demanding to know of me, why haven't you told us about it? You know, wh- Why have you left it to somebody else? So I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. Um, and I, I put this in a post on Facebook as well. This has been irritating the hell out of me that I, can, I can't do right for doing wrong. Uh, but uh, the, the intention is to actually try to have the book done before the end of, of next year. Of course, I could just put the photograph up and say, you know, to, to hell with it. But no, why should I? It's my photograph. I've done the work on it and it's up to me what I do with it. Right. And uh, I tell you, everybody's going to be looking forward to this book. That's for sure. Um, so it'll be something we'll, we can look forward to next year. I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. And congratulations, Philip, on uh, the discovery of this photograph. Oh, well, f- oh, thanks very much. No real congratulations <laughs> to, to be done. I was just, I was just someone who was quite lucky. This photograph turned up, and I bought it. There's, there's no backslapping to be done for getting the photograph. Well, kudos nonetheless, and um, I'm sure you encourage a lot of us to uh, start searching on eBay and in other places because that, it proves that more, more things are out there to be discovered. And that was RipperCast, episode 31, Scene of a Crime, the Duckfield Yard photograph. I want to thank all the guests for joining me today. We had Philip Hutchison, Rob Clack, Chris Scott, John Bennett, Robert McLaughlin, Allie Ryder, and Mike Covell. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at our website, www.rippernet.com, or in the iTunes Music Store, keyword Jack the Ripper or RipperCast. If you have any questions for myself, any of our co-hosts or special guests, feel free to email the show at rippernet at mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. 